This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello and welcome to the times red box podcast if you're thinking oof matt Chorley sounds fresh and dynamic No, it's still me, Luke Jones, sitting in. Matt will be back next week once he's sobered up from his stay-at-home garden holiday. Today, what with it being LGBT History Month, we're going to hear how the UK Parliament has become the gayest it's ever been. Blue, red and yellow from the rainbow flag will be here. Conservative Justine Greening, Labour's Chris Bryant and the SNP's Hannah Bardell. Plus, we're going to have a great leaf through the parliamentary archives as well. But first, our columnists today, Danny Finkelstein David Aronovich. First of all, um, what do you make of um, all of this seemingly good news that's on the front of the papers? We just had David Spiegelhalter on the programme saying that he thinks that excess deaths will be back to normal levels, quote, by next month, which sounds incredibly good from the the statistics which he's seeing coming out this morning. Um, Danny, should we be cheering and and unlocking sooner, as many people are calling for? (laughs) No, uh, yes, but no. Um, Obviously, what we we do need to uh, obviously reach some sort of balance as to the costs of locking down versus the risks that we'd be taking opening up. And that is obviously uh, a calculation to be made. But I would, I think the government's right to be on the cautious side. It was a, the policy I think it should have pursued in the autumn as well. Mm. Um, but, uh, well, obviously, um, it's very good. I think the vaccine strategy that we've been following uh, is, a, is the right strategy. In other words, the one-dose strategy, I think it's been bold uh, and it's been correct. And fortunately, um, both the the combination of lockdown, which we've done the same as other countries, and obviously uh, our successful vaccine rollout has made this possible. Uh, David, what do you think? The the cautious approach is right. I mean, the the Daily Mail is suggesting um, that even like stay at home could be could be scrapped soon. Um, Yeah, but the Daily Mail. as far as I can see, the Daily Mail and the Telegraph and papers like this seem to have a kind of agenda, which is always to push the government to open up earlier than it would. And I think we've already seen what happened with that back in the autumn and before Christmas. It was catastrophic. I mean, the first thing to say is we've had a very successful vaccine rollout after an incredibly 
large period of deaths and hospitalizations uh, uh, and so on. And we've had a very severe lockdown. And you would expect the levels of hospitalizations and deaths to come down significantly now and for the transmission rate to come down significantly now. And I don't think anybody in their right minds doubted that that would be the consequences of those things happening. Mm -hmm. So the question is always going to be, firstly, are there new variants out there which would otherwise alter the calculation about when we can open up and how we can open up and so on? Uh, and will we be able to deal with those, those variants? And then the question about how it will affect groups lower than the group which are most likely to die if we were to have an over-hasty opening, uh, over opening up. And the, thing, I mean, the obvious thing to say is, like Danny, like you, I am desperate for things to open up. I cannot, I, I, I mean, like other people, I've reached low points within the last few weeks, which I didn't think I could actually reach uh, uh, before. I'm desperate for this to happen, but I don't want to go back to it either if we've, uh, if we've opened up prematurely. That's the judgment that the government seem to be making. As far as I can see, as long as they ignore the mail, the telegraph and silly people in the Conservative Party, etc., then they're likely to make the right decisions. Well, you say silly people in the Conservative Party. I learned today that there is a common sense group of Conservative MPs joining the COVID research group, the European research group, the Northern research group. Um, Danny, what is it with all these groups? And actually, do, do they well, achieve much? <laughs> the interesting thing about it is it's not common sense. In other words, in the literal sense, it's not a sense shared commonly. Most people <laughs> don't think they're right. <laughs> um, That's a good and, and, grammatical issue to take with them. <laughs> and, and, yeah, and, 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 and most people don't think they're right. Um, the, the idea that um, kind of opening up early is some sort of uh, common sense rebellion against silliness, right? When, when most of us can see, um, and, that, and that literally means most of us, can see the scientific basis for what we're doing and therefore believe it makes, you know, it's basically rational. Um, that, that's what I object to in it. I think it's, um, I think it's, you know, in defiance even of what the conservative voters that, that say someone like John Hayes um, thinks he speaks for. Uh, and, um, you know, that, that's leaving aside whether it's the right policy or not. It doesn't even in its own political sense, uh, I think, um, follow uh, from, from, from his premises. David? Uh, look, I mean, you, you quite rightly have noted this kind of proliferation of interestingly named groups, particularly on the Conservative side, because they're the government, but they have a large majority. And so there isn't that, and, and there's a large number of people who aren't ministers who probably think that they ought to be, but need to find something to do. Yeah. And so they kind of form these kinds of groups. Now, I'm interested in the kind of nomenclature of it. So you get the European Research Group for people who don't like Europe, the Coronavirus Research Group for people who die, don't like coronavirus. Uh, and I'm presuming that this is the common sense ought to be the research group because they don't much really like common sense, etc. They'd rather something else kind of took mm. over. And this is the kind of sense I think of uh, uh, of how these groups get set up, but I was wondering because Danny will know whether there were had been even more exotically named groups. I mean, there are parliamentary backbench committees for just about everything, including you know so solidarity with or trade links with or trade with countries that are so small you've never even heard of them, and which means <laughs> they kind of go there once every kind of ten years or something like yeah. that on a freebie. Uh, and Danny, you're more familiar with these, and I, well, they probably have them in the House of Lords too, don't they? It's proliferated, but. Underneath it, there is something that everyone has called for for a long time, right? Which is that the 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 uh, the whip isn't as strong as it was thirty years ago. 
Um, there just is more diversity of thought. Uh, people are able to to take up the positions, you know, that they take up in the common sense group, although it is, it is, it is, is more about historical statues, of course, than it is about COVID. But, the, the, um, but all these groups are taking positions that aren't necessarily guided by what the whips tell them the position should be. And that is a long-standing trend that I don't think we can expect to reverse. And most people probably wouldn't want to reverse it, even if, you know, it leads to some groups saying things that, say, David or I don't think are wise. And do you think that that has happened? Is that a direct result of having majority government? Like, would all it's, of this slightly fall away if we were back in a coalition? No, no I, I think it's to do with um, the, the development of modern technologies, actually. Mm. I think that um, people have got the ability to express themselves independently uh, much more. And there's also much more of a, a red, much less of a regimented feel about politics as indeed about public life. People are just a little less willing to go along and do what they're told. The Conservative Party, you know, people have said this, that it represents less of an army than it did yeah. before. Um, and that, that, has, that has bad aspects in the sense that you can give a very loud voice to eccentric positions, but it has advantages too, because it does mean that the, um, you know, there's more diversity of thought. Am I right in saying that you've both been vaccinated or had one jab? Is that right? No, no. not in my case. David, have you? I certainly have, yes. Ah, well, because I was just wondering, I, I was interested in reading the paper today that the uh, the JCVI, the Joint Committee on Vaccines and Immunisation, are, are meeting again today to decide on what they should advise happens next once we've got through these one to nine priority groups. And, and the suggestion, it says, at least in the Times, is that they're going to agree that it should um, not be based on jobs, it should just continue to be age base and i wonder david how much of an argument are we going to have over that because of course we had the labor policy over, over teachers for example already uh, we, uh yeah we are going to have an argument about it because uh different people will feel different things i mean uh i felt a, a friend of mine got vaccinated two weeks before me and i felt a really strange level of envy about it uh you know kind of, sort of a sort of deep a rather kind of sort of psychologically flawed feeling that i was being left behind and if I was prepared to feel that for in the two weeks that it took for me to get vaccinated, you can imagine what a lot of other people are going to be feeling well, as Danny. the question comes up. Of where, where the, well, exactly. But he is a very young person. I mean, <laughs> you know, he's only just old enough to be your dad, Luke. I mean, that's how young, <laughs> that's how young he is. Um, uh, whereas I'm considerably more venerable and you treat me with the respect accordingly. <laughs> and I sometimes wonder whether you do. Um, but uh, so there will be a huge argument about it. And there is a, a the, the, the argument about teachers is interesting because Nadim Zahawi is saying, look, the thing is, insofar as teachers are in vulnerable groups, they will be being vaccinated now and will be vaccinated. The question about whether or not younger teachers who are not in risk groups need to have priority over people who are more likely to be in risk groups because of their proximity to children is a moot point. It was raised by Tony Blair. I've not yet seen the evidence that would suggest to me that that would be the priority that you would want but people who are absolutely desperate and i think we most of us are actually to get schools back tend to see this as a little bit of a magic bullet and i just don't know whether that's true and i mean i don't know and danny uh, i got it wrong it was the telegraph and they say it's also suggest that prioritizing occupations would be too complicated but i wonder if the government is going to be data driven yeah. and they say well we'll do what the jcvi tell us um, um will that actually hold or will there just be too much fury from people who well i hope it'll need... hold i think it probably will hold um, because I think that that is Matt Hancock's view as well. Um, 
and it should hold in my view i you know the problem is that once you begin to start to try to work out what is a vital job and what is not a vital job um you really are lost you know because uh, lots of people supply other people um you, if you had a rule that said everyone who had to go into work uh, would be vaccinated before all those that who wouldn't i think that would be extremely complicated line to police um and the kind of orderly queue that we've all formed could quite quickly break down. So I'm strongly for doing it by age. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the truth with, with, uh, with teachers is the evidence doesn't suggest they're more vulnerable than other parts of the population. And if it did, I think there'd be a different argument um, because obviously we are asking them, as we do indeed other people like supermarket uh, staff, for example, to do things that some people, i.e. newspaper columnists, don't always have to do. Um, <laughs> but, but, but I do think, but I, you know, so I think, of course, it has to be listened to respectfully. But I, I think the arguments against it are stronger than the arguments for it. It's not that there are no arguments for it. But ultimately, you have to make a balance. But hopefully, you know, the answer to this is just to get a shift on, do these quite rapidly. And so this argument, you know, hopefully it'll be over before it started because we'll have, mm. we'll have got sufficiently quickly through um, the, those people who are ser you know, more seriously vulnerable and over 50. Do you have that jealousy which, which David said that he felt? Um, well, sort of, but I, it's, not a, it's a feeling, I'm not, it's not a feeling particularly to which I'm prone, so, so maybe less than I otherwise would. <laughs> Let, let's move on to something uh, a little less uh, contentious. Free speech in universities. Um, <laughs> the Education Secretary, Gavin Williamson, is going to outline measures to protect free speech universities, including the idea of, of a, a free speech uh, champion. What, what do you make of this, David? Um, I, I, for, for quite a few, number of years, I was chair of something called Index on Censorship, which is um, uh, the leading advocacy group for free speech and freedom of expression, not just here and around the world. Um, and I'm trying to work out, and I, I've left the board, and I'd be interested to know what they think uh, about this. There is a problem, but whether the problem, how big the problem actually is, I mean, how kind of all-encompassing it is, and whether or not it requires this form of measure to deal with it is a completely it is a completely different matter and i've run it together a bit you talked about the common sense group of conservative mps earlier mm. they came into they came into prominence because of uh, a letter to them from oliver dowden the culture digital culture media and sports secretary uh, who was meeting with people in in english heritage etc apparently to kind of you know dust them down a bit about having woke history uh, 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 and airbrushing and so on, all this. And it strikes me that this is very much kind of, it seems to be part of a move at the moment by the government to suggest here are a series of things, important things that we're doing to kind of protect heritage and protect freedom of speech from this kind of, you know, the great kind of woke onslaught. When the woke onslaught, there is a bit of one, but it's not incredibly important. And I don't see any of these mechanisms as mechanisms which are likely to affect it. The final thing I'm going to say is I used to try and get to do fundraising for Index on Censorship. And I talked to somebody that Danny and I both know, um, who's a very big fundraiser, fundraises a lot for the Conservative Party. And what he said to me was, mm, he said, you should, I'm not going to say. Okay. And he said, and, 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 and he said, um, uh, I, I really support you, but you should understand that funding freedom of speech is seen as a much more left-wing cause than a right-wing cause. Um, well, how times change. <laughs> Danny, what do you think? Because um, David's just saying that it's not that massively uh, a problem. Gavin Williamson saying today it's real and alarming. 
Well, look, I, I think it sort of lies between those uh, things. The problem with it, it's very difficult to get at. Let's take an example of, of, of a, somebody being invited to, um, to deliver a speech at a you know, conference organised by the University Feminist Society and then a group of people inside that society decide to uninvite her. Is that their right or is it a breach of free speech? Um, my, my view is that we are we have become, as a society, and it does worry me, um, uh, sort of allergic to allowing anybody who's ever said something stupid um, from speaking. To give an example, right, I regard Ken Loach both as having ridiculous views about the organisation of society and more specifically troubling ones about Jews and... and um, Nevertheless, I wouldn't suggest that we prevent him from giving a talk at a university, even expressing, you know, certainly not about his films, but even expressing views that I don't like. And uh, because I don't think it fundamentally makes me unsafe. And I think that rhetoric is silly. Uh, yeah. But 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 the idea that a, that a champion of free speech appointed by Gavin Williamson is likely hugely to affect that, I, I find is a bit far-fetched. But is the and point... as for woke history, I think that's the whole point of history, that we would wake up uh, to the <laughs> things that have happened. It's just that we need to make sure we have a rounded view and not an ideological one, you know, or, or at least if we can have an ideological one, that it's correct ideology. But, but isn't the um, idea that, 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 that all of this is, is to protect people who need protecting? Like, of course, you're not going to feel threatened necessarily you're a well surprisingly young as we learned today columnist <laughs> um whereas actually there might be some people in minorities who think actually you know we do need protection no, from this kind of thing it's it's very it's it's important <laughs> to assert that, that that this is a very live issue for jews actually and that, that's why i gave you the example of ken loach so i do have and and it's not as though it doesn't you know for example the the spread of holocaust denial on social media uh you know as a, as a son of a holocaust survivor affected me very deeply personally yeah. so these are balances that you have to uh, make the whole time, I think. And th there's no clear line. There's no clean line. But my view is you ought to you ought to reduce the extent to which people feel that free speech makes them feel unsafe. Um, you, you ought to encourage people to engage in argument and, and debate as far as possible. But there are always common sense boundaries and it's trying to find those is very difficult. There is no clear line. Yeah, no, but there is a test in law about whether or not free speech uh, crosses the line, which is uh, incitement to hatred uh, and so on. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and we should allow the law, essentially, to define when that, uh, when that takes place. What, what I don't think you can have is a whole series of people saying, oh, I feel a bit kind of threatened by the fact that you have views that I don't have. Um, well, you might feel that way, but you probably aren't justified in feeling that. And it's no kind of terrible thing for me as a white man to say that I don't think that you should feel particularly threatened by it. And then you tell me, well, actually, I'm a kind of two or five kinds of categories of thing that should feel threatened by it. I, I just uh, it comes it becomes a real it becomes a problem in that way. The only thing is, I don't see that a free speech champion can do anything about it. I don't see that the various things that the government is suggesting legal in legal terms that it might conceivably do yeah. will actually work. I don't think they will actually happen, half of them, I have to say. And I think this is very much more about politics than it is about freedom of speech. I honestly do. So it doesn't sound like either of you are going to pop in an application? <laughs> uh, free speech champion? Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I, I think I'd be really good at it. You'd be on the board of the Office for Students. 
Yeah, I mean, as a fifty, what's fifty thousand pounds a year? Would it be for a day of work? Day, but, day <laughs> but I mean, let you let me give you an example of the contradictions involved in this. The government is also extremely concerned to prevent radicalisation in universities, right? So clearly, it believes there is some kind of speech that they don't want, um, as well as speech. So it, these things are. They are just very, they are just difficult lines, right? Do you, is it compulsory for organisations in universities to invite people they don't like, for instance, right? So, but there, you know, so, so there, there are lots of different lines that somebody will have to subtly uh, navigate. Yeah. On yeah. the other hand, right, I do basically agree that protecting diversity mm -hmm. of thought in universities and defending against the idea that um, freedom of speech makes yeah. people feel makes people unsafe yeah. that is a very important thing to repel a, a yeah. quick a quick final thought on this because Go i'm on, very quickly to move on yeah very quickly uh, the argument about this has got to be a political argument with people about the values of freedom of speech not a bureaucratic yeah. one about what the champion says or what the law says you're listening to the Red Box Politics Podcast. That was Danny Finkelstein and David Aronovich. Up next, the UK Parliament is the gayest it's ever been. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Now, it's time to take you to one of Parliament's success stories. After the 2019 general election, the UK took the title of the world's gayest parliament with 45 out gay MPs. Sadly, though, it was stripped of this title after New Zealand's election in autumn last year. But still, an incredible step forward for a country where homosexuality was illegal for literally hundreds of years. We wanted to look at how we got here from the laws which kept people oppressed to the pioneers who worked to make things better. In just a moment, we'll hear from three current and former MPs, Labour, Conservative and SNP, about their experiences as out MPs. But first, I spoke to Penny McMahon from the Parliamentary Archives. I started by asking her to explain the background of laws pro prohibiting homosexuality in the UK and how that affected politics. Same-sex relationships between men has been um, illegal in the UK since 1533, so under the reign of Henry VIII. That legislation is still in place until the 1800s when it changes slightly, um, and but you could still get kind of life imprisonment. The, there, there's kind of a change then in terms of there's a, the Criminal Law Amendment Act is passed in 1885 um, and before that before that time uh, the, it's really kind of focused on kind of the 
act of sodomy, but isn't really kind of talking about kind of same-sex love and desire. But what the Criminal Law Amendment Act of 1885 does is that it puts in an amendment that um, any acts of gross indecency between two men um, is now illegal. And this is kind of what Oscar Wilde was prosecuted under. And it meant that people could go to jail for kind of two years. Um, so it kind of has this massive effect really um, on sort of how openly uh, gay men in particular could live their lives. So gay mm. women aren't um, mentioned at this time. Um, they're not really covered in the legislation. So which is why it's kind of amazing that the first woman that kind of is openly, the first MP that is openly gay is an MP, so Maureen Culhoun. So what's really interesting about her was um, she was elected in 1974 and at the time she was married to a man, lived in Surrey and had kind of three kids and they all lived together. Um, and she fell in love with um, a woman, her partner, uh, called Babs. Um, so by 1976, she lived in London with her partner and they were kind of, op they were openly a couple, although not kind of publicly open. Um, and she was kind of outed by a newspaper, a reporter who basically did a big expose kind of on her life. So she was Gosh. never actually elected as a gay woman. She was kind of elected as a married heterosexual woman who was kind of outed, even though she did, she did live her life kind of openly, but not publicly openly, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. When did we start to see more people, and I guess people who were elected and, and when it was known that they were? Openly gay, openly gay, men or women? Yeah, absolutely. So we had Chris Smith in 1984 who um, came out as gay um, and during a rally where there were, he was protesting um, a possible ban on gay employees um, in a town in, in rugby. And it's really kind of extraordinary when I read about this because there's quite a lot of hostility, uh, particularly towards gay men during the early 80s. That it's kind of, it's really like amplified by um, the AIDS epidemic and the fear and the unknown kind of around that. The first kind of act that was really kind of a change in, in the tide really in terms of LGBT plus relationships was the Sexual Offences Act in 1967. Mm. Um, and that was kind of based on the recommendations of the Wolfenden Report. Uh, these recommendations were made in kind of 1957, but it's not until 1967 that we see the legislation being adopted. And actually there's um, kind of like a, a partnership between um, Leo Wabsey, uh, who's an MP, um, a Welsh MP that sort of is very dapper in his dress, always fold, always bow tie, and um, a Lord, Lord Aaron. And between the two of them, they, I think they push, pushed kind of uh, a bill to decriminalise uh, same-sex relationships between men um, every year until kind of 1966 when it was kind of eventually it was accepted 
That's Penny McMahon from the Parliamentary Archives. So, what has life been like for out gay MPs? First, let's hear from Labour MP Chris Bryant. I asked him to first take me back almost 20 years to when he first entered Parliament. I wasn't, I'm not sure that when I arrived, I was particularly conscious of being a gay man, except that um, there were, so far as I can remember, no out gay Tories at all then. Hmm. Alan Duncan came out a little bit later. Nigel Evans a long time later. And in fact, I remember trying to persuade him to come out and he said that he, he couldn't do so until after, a, after another general election for some reason. Um, and, um, and in the intervening years, um, I've had a few kind of uh, difficult moments. There was a moment when um, one Tory MP um, said he wouldn't give way to me in a debate on smacking because... I was a notorious homosexual who would never have children of his own. Yeah. They said that out loud in the chamber. Out loud in the chamber, yes. Well, the, well, David Cameron quite frequently referred to my sexuality in debates. In what way? Uh, not in a laudatory way, let's put it that way. He wasn't... Uh, um, uh, he, he, he was trying to tease and... Uh, and and George Osborne had a go at me, calling me a pantomime dame. Um, it's, 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 it's not, I mean, you know, most of these things are water of a duck's back and I don't care. Mm. Um, but um, uh, Parliament hasn't changed as much as some might hope it has. And, and what about now? Is there still that kind of language or, or attitude in the chamber, not in the chamber? Uh, I, I think nowadays, well, it's difficult to know who the gay MPs are. There are so many that, um, and that's great. It's, you know, I never wanted to be a gay MP. I wanted to be the Labour MP for the Ronda. Hmm. Um, and, and I mean, in my constituency, I've hired, I remember when I was selected as a candidate, uh, I think even the independence headline was how pink was my valley. And the Times, the Guardian, the um, Telegraph all predicted that I'd lose the seat because of my sexuality. Um, I got elected with a majority of more than 10,000. But um, uh, and I've very, very rarely faced open homophobia. I mean, I'm president of lots of rugby clubs and everybody loves taking um, or having a pop at me kind of thing. But I give as good as I get and everybody loves it. It's fine. It's it's uh, rugby is fortunately a very um, generous sport when it comes to homosexuality. I can't put it in a better way than that. Yeah. And I'll ask you about the sort of more recent um, environment in a moment, but, but in your time, would you say the House of Commons overall in your career has been homophobic? As in, in t- I mean, you, you mentioned sort of comments you'd had in debates and things like that, but as a, as a place of work, as an institution, has it been, is it still maybe? homophobic well one um person who is very senior in the house um still today i remember telling me that i was a disgrace and shouldn't be an mp because i was gay um are they still I an remember MP? A door- yeah i remember a doorkeeper um telling me um that uh, he wouldn't open a door for me because i was gay um now, I mean, all of these things have, for the most part, changed. Um, 
but they haven't entirely, I think. It sounds like you're saying, yes, it is a homophobic place to work. Um, I, I don't think it is compared to lots of other places, but, but I have met some homophobia is what I'm saying. I, I think it is limited now to a small number of people, but those people, uh, and those people, I think, for them, in the main, know how to hide it. Hmm. Um, but I'm afraid I have a long memory. Yeah, and yeah. a diary. And a diary. Good grief. Yes. I remember it, one MP telling me um, that he had been taking bets with um, journalists about when I would commit suicide. Uh, when I got into trouble with the uh, Mail on Sunday back in 2003. I, I, uh, sorry, I'm slightly gobsmacking, but um, a member of parliament on your, in your own party? I mean, not that it makes a difference, but... A member of parliament. A member of parliament. What about, the, what about the upsides? The reason we're doing this is because, of course, the UK parliament is the gayest parliament. Um, when can you first remember that actually um, out members of parliament were making changes which were for the benefit of LGBT people? When did you start to feel the impact and the benefit of there being gay people on the benches? I remember there was a... Um, a very complicated row when we were, when Labour was legislating first of all for civil partnerships, there's a very complicated row about pensions Mm. um, on which I'm not a great expert, but the fact that Angela Eagle and I could combine um, and could knock on Gordon Brown's door and could say, could say openly, look, you've got to address this issue because it's manifestly unfair that people entering civil partnerships now will not enjoy the same pensions, pension freedoms that their equivalents in heterosexual marriages will enjoy. I mean, that made a dramatic difference. Yes, it did. And the fact that we could be open about it. Um, likewise, I remember going to see Tony Blair to, to talk about the... Um, we, were, we were changing the law so that um, companies wouldn't be able to discriminate in the provision of goods and services um when uh on on grounds of sexuality and there was a row about that because um some of the adoption agencies the catholic adoption agencies although they already put children with individual homosexual men or women were refusing to to put them with couples and we thought that this was bizarre um and we went to see tony blair about it uh and I seem to recall we took Greg Pope, who was a Labour MP, along because we thought that maybe being called Pope somehow or other, this might help in the discussion. But actually, Tony was absolutely clear and open and and robust. But it was great that, you know, there was a group of seven or eight um, gay Labour MPs who were able to have a conversation with them. Um, I remember going to see the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, both Rowan Williams and then Justin Welby as a group of gay MPs to talk about um, issues in the Church of England and the ordination of women and so on. Um, uh, but th- there's one thing I'd say, which is that I think there were lots of MPs in the past, before Chris Smith even, mm. and before Maureen Colquhoun, who probably thought they were out, in that, you know, they never really sort of hid it, and everybody sort of knew. You mean in a sort but of Kenneth Williams people. kind of way? Well... You know, yeah, or, or more, um, they weren't quite as camp as that, but, but Charles Irving, used to, who's the MP for Cheltenham for many years, Conservative MP, he used to send 
um, a, uh, a bunch of roses to Mrs. Thatcher every single day. Um, I mean, I, I think he got into trouble cottaging at one point. Um, and um, he also rescued, incidentally, a Labour MP who got into terrible trouble um, and a, um, in a, I think, dressed in a Nazi outfit in a, um, in a club in Berlin. Um, and, and Charles Irving paid, his, paid the Labour MPs legal expenses, as I understand it. Mm. Um, but there were quite a few in the, in the 60s, 70s and 80s who were sort of semi-out is the best way of putting it. But, yes. but they never had, because they couldn't be properly out, they couldn't make the case for um, reform in so many different um, areas. And it was only when you know, Jack Straw and Tony Blair became the, the team driving forward this policy in government in 1997 and you had a, like a whole you know, swathe of uh, gay and lesbian uh, MPs that you were really able to make mm. the difference. That's a Labour MP, Chris Bryant. In a moment, we'll hear from the former Conservative MP, Justin Greening, about what it was like coming out whilst in the Cabinet. And we'll also hear from the SNP's Hannah Bardell, who was elected as an MP in 2015. This is Times Radio. And it is LGBT History Month, so we are reflecting on the UK Parliament, officially the gayest it's ever been. So we're speaking to current and former MPs about their experiences as LGBT politicians. We just heard from Chris Bryant, the Labour MP, even saying at one point that a doorkeeper in the Commons wouldn't open a door for him, saying it was because he was gay. I've also been hearing this morning from Justine Greening, of course, the former Conservative Education Secretary. And I asked her what it means to have better representation in Parliament for LGBT people. What it's meant is that the UK has been able to move ahead on things like same-sex marriage, um, possibly faster maybe than other countries. And certainly, from my very personal perspective, having also spent time as International Development Secretary, I think whenever we were talking about the importance of LGBT rights internationally, it meant that we were able to do so from a genuine position of credibility. And I think that really helps. So I think it's not only been important for change within the UK, of course, there's a long way to go and all of that. Mm. But I think it has helped us internationally as well. We just heard from, from Chris Bryant, the, the Labour MP, and, and he was, I was quite shocked at the, the number of instances he could reel off where he'd faced homophobia in the chamber, um, from members of House of Commons staff. It was quite incredible. I wonder if, if, if you've ever experienced anything like that. I haven't, but I think it's probably thanks to people like Chris who've been you know, known for, for being part of the LGBT community for a lot longer than I have. I think it's thanks to the, the progress that they insisted was made that actually by the time... I came out and did my tweet about being in a same-sex relationship. I think Parliament was in a much, much better place. But actually, it's been a long journey, and and it's been people like Chris who've who've fought actually to help make it a better environment. But but my experience in 2016 was, I mean, for, for MPs, I, I I felt it was massively positive. But I also feel we were at a stage where we'd we'd done a lot of things as a Parliament. And whilst I've been an MP to help shift things forward, it's almost like we've had that debate. I think same-sex marriage, which it, it's easy to forget, if you like, that one of the things that David Cameron did as prime minister that he didn't arguably need to do was to bring in same-sex marriage. And I almost felt like 
for our parliament, that was an important debate about um, equality. But it, it sort of moved people on again. Mm. Do you see what I mean? I, I felt yeah. like it was a time where you could have... Well, we, we ended up revisiting something um, fresh, and I think it helped move things on. Um, and, and so I think now we're in a much better position than, than we've been in the past. But, yeah, I think it's obviously unacceptable that people like Chris have ever had those sorts of experiences. But but, it, but even from, you mentioned there, David Cameron, that was one example that he used, David Cameron, in, in the Commons Chamber, referring to him as a, as a pantomime dame, which... Um, Chris Bryant saw as a, as a homophobic slur. I mean, even that, as recent as this, it's quite shocking, isn't it? Yeah, and I think I think what it shows is it's it's almost this risk of not just conscious bias but also unconscious bias. And this this point I made earlier, which is actually there's a lot more to be done mm. on the issue of LGBT rights. And whilst I was Minister for Women and Equality which was a role I held whilst I was also Secretary for Education, we did this LGBT survey of the community to get a sense of these wider issues that the community faces. And there was an incredible response to it. Um, We had something like 110,000 different people come back on the survey. But what it showed was that there are still issues around homophobia, you know, physical violence, and, and you know, we've seen that mm. recently as well with attacks on, on people. But also just the health system, you know, provision on mental health in particular, and just a real sense that there's a, there's a, wider, a wider agenda out there that needs to be understood and worked on if you're going to really make this a version of a country where it genuinely doesn't matter. You know whether you're whether you're straight or gay or, or, or however you want to put mm. that. Um, there's there's a long way to go. Justin Greening, former Conservative MP and Minister. It's 25 minutes past 11. Let's go live to Hannah Bardell, SNP MP, elected in 2015. Good morning. Good morning, Luke. Pleasure and to be with you. Pleasure to have you on. And and we're talking to you because the SNP has the honour of being the the gayest party by proportion. Um, yes. What do you Nine make of, of us. that? <laughs> Yeah, it, it, you know it's 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 hugely positive, and I'm and I'm very proud to be one of the nine in our in our group at Westminster and in the Scottish Parliament as well. We have uh, you know many uh, gay MSPs across the political spectrum. You know, at one time we had three of the the leaders um, in the Scottish Parliament mm. who were gay. Um, so yeah, it, it's very proud, but I think it's important that we reflect on as as both. Chris and Justine have how far we've come, but also how far we've still got to go and, and the challenges that folk in the, the LGBT community still have to face, both mm. here in the UK and abroad. You know, a lot of those countries that 72 nations across the world that they're still um, it's still illegal to be gay. Um, and I think 11 of those where you, it's punishable by death and lots of those are former Commonwealth mm. nations. So there's an important role for us to play internationally as well as at home. Well, at home, I wonder what you think that the the practical, actual policy decisions um, that sh- should and, and could be taken now to bring about more equality. I think there are across so many policy areas. I mean, you know, the news today about veterans, mm. I think, is is a really important step forward. And, and I remember the the battle that John Nicholson, my colleague and friend, had when we brought forward gay pardons. Um, you know, and, and there was a real back and forth about that, and that was really disappointing. And it's it's positive to see 
that the, the UK government seems to have moved on and, and is now looking at other areas. So, yes, things like, you know, people who have historically been uh, persecuted and discriminated against, I think that's it's a huge step forward because reading some of the experiences of veterans who were either pushed out of their roles um, or uh, discharged and 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 shamed um, is is horrific, but there's also areas in in health, particularly um, in terms of health inequality. For uh, we had a debate oh, just I think it was just before COVID actually, just before COVID um, broke and we 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 all had to work start working from home, um, and we spoke a lot about the the health inequalities. There's still you know disproportionately high levels of uh, suicide and self-harm, particularly amongst LGBT young people, particularly amongst the trans community who've had you know, a really tough time of late. And we, yes, we have uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual members in, in the House of Commons and in Scottish Parliament and other parliaments across the UK. We don't have any trans members. Mm. So that's something, you know, seeing Petra de Souter, for example, become the deputy Prime Minister in Belgium and Sarah McBride get, become the most senior trans elected representative in the US, a, a Delawarean state senator, was, I think, a really big moment. And, and, why, do you and think, why do you think that hasn't happened yet in either the Scottish Parliament or, or in the House of Commons? I think for the same reasons that we, you know, when I got elected in 2015, there were still more men in that sitting than had ever been women elected. Mm. You know, we have come a long way, but we ha having people in positions of power who've got different perspectives and who are from minority communities is, is still a big challenge. And it's it, it's about the structural barriers of, of politics. And, and it's one of the reasons I stood for election, because I looked at the, the line-up of <laughs> what was there um, at Westminster and I thought, well, there's not very many young you know, working class from a mm. single parent um, gay MPs. Now, I didn't come out until after I was elected. You know, So hearing Chris's experiences... It's quite galling, actually, although in recent times, you know, many folk will know about the, you know, really grim experience I had with Lord McGuinness. There are still legislators yeah. in some parts of our parliament, in the House of Lords, particularly, who are, you know, very anti-LGBT and homophobic. And, you know, but I got a huge amount of support from members in both houses when I came out and over the Lord McGuinness issue. Um, but I think it's, you know, we still have we still have a distance to travel, and I think the narrative at the moment that you know there's a lot of misinformation um, and and dark actors on the internet, particularly, and some of the debates, the really toxic debates around trans issues, have you know been funded, I think, and there's certainly evidence that shows that from from the US and, and places, and that's infiltrating largely within the sort of Twitter bubble and Twitter sphere, but it's it's mm. doing a lot of damage and there's not been a decent space to have a decent discussion. Well, but I think there's also not been that decent discussion within the SNP, has there? The, the sort of trans rights is, is quite a divisive issue within the party at the moment. And I wonder what damage you think that is doing for um, young trans people generally, but also trans people who might want to one day be in the Scottish Parliament. It might put them off, do you think? You make some very fair points, and I think it's something that you know all political parties have had challenges with. But yes, absolutely, within the SNP, we've had challenges, and it's about, I think, creating space to have a, a decent discussion. And I think all the evidence shows that you know we're spending so much more of our lives online at the moment, and online is where the the, the discussion has got has got really toxic, and and people have questions, 
and they need to be answered, but also we need to be able to protect people. And you're absolutely right. We, when, when, when the discussion becomes so toxic, people are pushed out, you know, and, and, and they don't want to take part. Now, whether that's in discussion, whether that's in participation politically, and, and that's really important that we, that we, 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 you know, and we are trying, you know, to, to address some of that. But in terms of who we, who we have in Parliament, you know, and, and the fact that we have so many LGBT MPs at Westminster, you know, that's, it's incredibly important. Um, it's incredibly important, I think, for the fact that, you know, it was such a big deal for people like Chris Bryant, mm. you know, when they came out, you know, when I came out, it was about a year after I got elected or about eight months. And I made a conscious decision not not to be the first thing I said because about myself, yeah. because I was just coming to terms with it really as I was getting elected. And it was actually Chris who organised a photograph for all the LGBT uh, MPs and peers. And, and I took part in that and that felt like a, a natural thing, but it was still a thing. Mm. And I questioned whether I needed to say anything. I thought, you know, are we not at the stage where really it doesn't matter? I thought, no, I hold a position of power and influence. And I came out with the cover and privilege of being an elected representative. You could argue also the exposure of that. But, you know, there's lots of people in workplaces and what different walks of life around the UK that still struggle to come out. They struggle to come out to their families. They struggle to come out to their friends because of, you know, structural or cultural issues. And, and that's something that we, you know, you know, Justine talks about her role as you know, international development secretary and going abroad, and and the fact that we've got such a good record, we do in many respects in the UK, but there are still issues that need addressed, yeah. and we can only advocate on the global stage uh, on LGBT rights if we are doing our very best for everybody mm. in that community, you know, and that I think that's really important. So. Yeah. Working across parliaments, working across governments, and us using our, our our voices, and and also I think remembering our history and and celebrating our history, seeing the Russell T Davis program, you know, it's a sin. I recommended it to lots of friends who are you know are heterosexual who are not necessarily aware of some of these issues, and one of my friends who's a straight guy. He watched it and he was just, he was so taken aback. He was like, I can't believe that this happened in my lifetime. I didn't yeah. know anything about it. For a lot of people, this, you know, the treatment of people with HIV, of the gay community in the 80s, it passed them by. You know, they weren't in the, in the 90s, you know, and, yeah. and, and it, it's quite unbelievable. So I think that's the advent of, of new kinds of media, Netflix, yeah. Amazon, the space to create new programs um, and, and us spending so much more of our lives online has Thanks. its advantages as well. That's all we've got time for on the Red Box Politics Podcast. Remember, you can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts, including, by the way, the Times Radio app. And you can read the Red Box email every morning. You just have to subscribe to the Times. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe.
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.